Well, who hasn't heard this cry? It's not fair. I grew up with two sisters in my family, and I tell you, I said this a lot. It's not fair. They seem to gang up on me. Now, certainly speaking, uh, after watching the game last night, those All Blacks are too good, aren't they? It's just not fair. Well, from, if, you're in English, if you're from England, uh, welcome. It's great to have you. And, of course, you'll be saying, Steve Smith, it's just not fair. How do you get that man out? But it is in families where we hear these complaints most often, I think. It's particularly acute when we sense our own injustice. And it's interesting seeing that as a parent. I mean, I'm sure it wouldn't happen in your families, but seeing that sense of it's not fair. And uh, we see that arise very profoundly and deeply. Sometimes it can be trivial in our families. But there are times in our world where justice just cries out to be done. We're going to see that in our family, in our passage today. But we look out into our world today and we see the farmers, don't we? And the drought that they're going through. And we see even our dams here in Sydney are dropping below 50%. Talking about, you know, one of the worst droughts there's ever been. Uh, How can we not pray for and care for and support those farmers who are really, really struggling, biting deep? And uh, I want to encourage you to keep praying and caring and supporting for farmers in the drought. And we see something similar here in Nehemiah 5. You see, Nehemiah set 445 years before Jesus Uh, God's people have come back into the promised land after being in exile for disobeying him and wandering away from him. They've come back, promised to stick with God and to do his thing. And Nehemiah has come. God has sent him to be the leader of God's people and to rebuild the city, to rebuild the walls. And we've seen over these coming weeks how enemies and threats have come up. Last week, we began to see that this is really spiritual warfare because anyone who's opposed to God and building his kingdom, standing behind all of that is Satan. And last week we saw that Satan uses three devices, psychological warfare, physical threats, personal discouragement, to stop or try and stop Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the city. It doesn't work, it fails. And now in chapters 5 and 6 we see challenges from within. We see how spiritual warfare can rise up from within because now we see the wall is built in chapters 5 and 6. But a huge challenge to Nehemiah's leadership comes in the face of people who are suffering intensely. The complaint comes from some of the Jews. It's not fair. They have been impoverished by a famine and sunk into debt and slavery. Uh, The building of the wall was in many ways the straw that broke the camel's back. And Nehemiah faces the question, how are we going to keep going in the face of terrible injustice? Uh, Have a look at Nehemiah chapter 5 because I want you to see, I want you to feel the sense of injustice as the people face a new enemy themselves in a sense what good are rebuilt walls if the relationships of people of God are in ruins because of a lack of forgiveness a lack of grace and a lack of mercy the big question as we read in Nehemiah 5 I want you to be thinking about can the city really be rebuilt when the people's relationships lie in ruins chapter 5 verse 1 now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers some were saying we and our sons and our daughters are numerous In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. And although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we were powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong 
to others. Three things we see in this passage. Uh, We first see the outcry in the city. Because while all these people have been working on the wall, while they've been rebuilding the city, God's city, Jerusalem, there's this famine going on and the rich Jews are taking advantage of the poor ones. The poor ones are having to mortgage their homes just to buy food, just to survive. They're selling their sons and daughters into slavery. It's a terrible situation and the rich are getting richer and the poor and the vulnerable are getting poorer. As those who are building the wall keep going, the farmers need to eat. They need to pay taxes. According to Herodotus at that time, uh, who was the satrapy of, of Judah, they had to pay 350 talents annually. That is high taxes. And they had to have enough grain so they could plant next year's crops. And it was all falling apart. There's no bankruptcy protection. There's no government welfare or grants. And to top it all off, Nehemiah has been getting the bulk of the people to rebuild the city, to stand as soldiers, to defend it, and it's brought them to the brink. Their lands are mortgaged, there's a famine, and the relationships among God's people are broken. Verse 5, you see that. Now, when you read the Bible, when you, if you know your Bible, if you know the Old Testament law, you know in Deuteronomy that the law didn't permit the poor to be charged interest. And so these, these rich Jews here, they're failing to do what's right. They're not caring for the downtrodden and the vulnerable. They're not feeding the hungry. They weren't redeeming the Jewish slaves like they were supposed to. They didn't fear the Lord and his ways. And as Jesus would warn in Matthew chapter 25, his, he warns his disciples, when you don't care for your brother or your sister who is in need, you do not care for God because God has a heart for the vulnerable, for the poor. And so the second thing we see is confrontation in the city. Uh, What's Nehemiah going to do? He gathers an assembly. In verse 6, he takes steps to address the issues. Verse 6, when I heard the outcry from these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're exacting usury from your own countrymen. And so I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we've brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. And now you're selling your brothers? Only for them to be sold back to us? They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. What happens? Verse 12. After calling them to give it all back, they say, we will give it back. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. And they make an oath. It's a very powerful section. The outrage of Nehemiah as he stands before the people. And in verse 9, he appeals to the one thing that will change their minds. There is one thing that gives you strength to be able to deal with this situation. Verse 9. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? If you are going to be called one of God's people, you need to fear and honour him. You need to do what God says, but they're doing exactly what God said not to do. And so they make themselves open to the charge of hypocrisy to those who are outside of God's people. They're ripping off their own people. And worse than that, there's this question that hangs over this whole section, this this whole period of history for God's people through the whole book of Nehemiah. Because God said that if you're going to come home to Jerusalem, if you're going to come and be one of my people, there needs to be real repentance. It hinged on, everything hinged on, Real repentance. And he includes himself in that. So Nehemiah goes to set things right. He makes them promise to give back, to cancel the interest, 
And he says there's no room here for people who ignore the covenant of God. There's no room here for people who are going to treat their brothers and their sisters like you have been. He says you're acting worse than the Gentiles and it's got to stop. And so we see the extent of what Nehemiah goes to to set things right. And he puts himself firmly in the middle of that. The third thing we see is his example, the lasting example to the city. Verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. And this is very different to what had happened before. He didn't take what was rightfully his because he wanted to care for those who had nothing. See, the point is having Jewish blood in your veins is not enough. The people of God have got to live like the people of God. And I guess in the end, it's the same for us. It's the same for you and me. If we want to be Christians, if we want to be people who bear the name of Jesus, we've got to live like Jesus. We've got to live Jesus' way, consistently seeking to honour God. Because that's what brought Israel undone, wasn't it? They kept turning away from God. They kept going their own way. See what this kind of self-sacrificing, non-oppressive leadership of Nehemiah does? It changes everything because he's so different from the predecessors because he himself is willing to do it, to stand up and be counted because he fears God. Verse 15b, he says, because of the fear of God. That's what motivates his leadership. And this is what should have, according to Nehemiah, motivated the nobles, those wheelers and dealers in verse 9. And we find the true basis for biblical ethics. How do you know what's the right thing to do in any situation as you go out and live in the world? It's the fear of God that shows you. Knowing that one day you and I will all stand before God and give an account for our lives. It's the fear of God that leads to compassion for people. It's the fear of God that leads to seeking justice and doing what is right. And Nehemiah set the example as a leader. And in verse 19, he gives us the first of several remember passages. Verse 19, remember me with favour, O my God, for all I have done for these people. It's a kind of refrain throughout Nehemiah's memoirs. And it's a very striking verse. It really stood out to me as I read through. It makes you ask, where do I look for reward? Who do I look to for approval of what I am doing? If you're a Christian, if you're one of God's people, don't expect it from other people. You seek it from the Lord to do what he would have you do. Chapter 6 goes on and we see further the opposition from Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab. But Nehemiah's leadership, his faithful leadership continues. He uh, realises what they might do to try and trick him, to try and take him out, and he trusts in God. And so by the end of the chapter, verse 15, chapter 6, the war was completed on the 25th of Elu in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realised that this work had been done with the help of our God. In the end, Nehemiah is not a story about Nehemiah. It's a story about how God works in the world. He overcomes this spiritual warfare from the enemies outside, from the divisions within, because he looks to God. So let's apply this to ourselves. I think there's four things for us if we're going to think about what it means to live, to walk in the fear of our God. Firstly, it means real repentance. It's what it meant for them. It's what it means for us. Martin Luther, when he began the Reformation, nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. And the very first was this. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. 
On the surface, it looks a little bleak, but Luther wasn't saying Christians will never make progress. That wasn't his point. To make progress in the Christian life, repentance is the way. That pervasive, all-of-life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply in the Lord because you're bringing your life to God day by day. And his blessings are new every morning. That's the character of a transformed life. See, radical grace transforms you as you come before the God, before God in the fear of the Lord. It's so different to religion. See, the purpose of repentance in religion is generally to try and appease God. Let's make God happy so that he'll answer my prayers. So often religious repentance, if I can call it that, is A, selfish, B, self-righteous, and C, bitter all the way. So different to being transformed by radical grace, which unites us with Christ transforms us from the inside out and renews us day by day. That's why Jesus died and bled for me and for you. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he defeated death, so he can bring that forgiveness and wash us clean. It's not payback. It's not about fairness. We live for God now because of radical grace. And secondly, costly compassion. How are we going to put this into practice? Well, this morning we've seen that God calls on his people to be content with a standard of living which is moderate and doesn't exploit other people, that has an eye to justice, that has an eye to loving and serving others. God doesn't outlaw the rich or make it a sin to acquire wealth, but sure, God surely lays on the heart of his people who are resourced to provide for others. God approves hard work and wealth's often the fruit of it. But the rich are not exempt from the call of all Christians to live moderately and to give sacrificially. How can we determine how much to give away? Well, it cuts into our lifestyle, doesn't it? And the burden falls on us. And so when you look at your family's gifts and resources and think, how can I honour God with what he's given you? You'll show mercy. Mercy in action and in justice and in sharing the love of Christ because that is how God's kingdom is growing in this world. I want to also think about what costly compassion might mean for us with the debates that we're seeing at the moment around abortion. Uh, Abortion and the legislation that's going through Parliament and the debates and discussions we've had is is an absolute tragedy. It's a very personal issue and a source of deep distress for many in our community. And it's so important that we keep praying for not only the Parliament, that God will be strengthening upholding those who are grieving the loss of a child or difficult decisions they've had to make. And I want to say that costly compassion means that for us as a Christian community, we need to be the place where people can find compassion, forgiveness, understanding for anyone who might have faced this kind of situation. It opens up the possibility that grace will need to be shown in terms of things like adoption, care for the vulnerable, care for those within. I want to share with you the story of a a dad who has an 18-year-old daughter and goes to a church here in Sydney. And he said this, I clearly remember the day my 18-year-old daughter told me she was pregnant. He's a Christian man and she's a Christian. And it turned our lives upside down. I also remember taking her to the doctor to get the results of her blood test. And I'll never forget how the female doctor, who also had a daughter the same age, tried several times to convince her to simply take this tablet and it will all go away. My daughter said with conviction, I made one mistake. I will not make another. The doctor stared at us in disbelief. And the father wrote, I'm so very proud of my daughter and her decision to keep her unborn child. Her dreams of becoming a school teacher are on hold for now. 
a small sacrifice so she can put the life of her son before her own. One day he'll grow up and fully understand her story and be thankful his mum made the right decision. And he took a photo of his daughter and her little baby boy. And he quoted from Psalm 139 about how God knits us together in my mother's womb. It was a deeply moving story, but I wonder if that would be true for us. If an 18-year-old daughter of someone in our family becomes pregnant, would we show the same love and care for her? So that she feels welcome and finds care and support in our church. And would we be prepared to support people who are not in our church, who are less resourced and don't have the same support structures we have as a community? I want to tell you about Diamond Women's Support. It's an organisation that provides for women, for mothers, who are having to make some very difficult decisions. It's a safe place where women can come and be heard of any age. To be part of a family and a community, the services are completely free of charge because they're supported by people like you and me who enable that to happen. They do free pregnancy testing, they do options counselling, they have mentorships, they have post-abortion counselling. They work with students, they work with women, they work with men to best serve women and families in our community. And I want to encourage you to support organisations like Diamond so that we can care for and have a compassion for those who are having to make such incredibly difficult decisions and live out our Christian faith with justice. Third, watching witness. Grace comes to the undeserving. And so our costly compassion will boldly proclaim the gospel that we we have. The world is watching us, friends. And we need to remember everything we do has the potential of being honour or dishonour to God. Because people are watching and they're just ready to say, those Christians, they're such hypocrites. People are watching the way you live. So let them see the fruit of the Spirit. Let them see compassion and generosity and integrity instead of selfishness and greed and exploiting the vulnerable. God calls you and I to fear him, respecting God enough to actually live his way, holding God in awe so you care about what he thinks before you care about what other people think. As it says in verse 9, people who fear God, who walk in the fear of God. And the only way you're going to get that and be able to sustain that is finally free forgiveness. It means knowing to the depth of your being that Jesus has freely forgiven you because of what he has done and not what you've done. The great story in Les Miserables was Jean Valjean sentenced to hard labour for stealing bread. I love the story because the hardened convict, he comes to stay at the priest's house. He's the only one who'll take him in. But that night, once he's convinced the priest has drifted off to sleep, he gets out of the house with all the silver. The next morning, three police knock on the priest's door and uh, they've got a tight grip on Valjean. They've caught him with all the silverware in his possession. They just need the priest to confirm and they'll lock him up forever. But the priest responds in a way that no one expects. So here you are, he cried to Valjean. I'm so delighted to see you. Had you forgotten that I gave you the candlesticks as well? They're silver like the rest and worth a good 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? And Jean Valjean's eyes widened. He couldn't believe his ears. Valjean is not a thief, the priest assured the policeman. The silver was my gift to him. And when the police withdrew, the priest gave his candlesticks to his guests, now speechless. And the priest said, do not forget, do not ever forget that you have promised me to use this money and make yourself an honest man. And it was, that was the life-changing moment for Jean Valjean. Because free forgiveness is the sweetest gift of all. Think of the worst things that you've ever done, the hurts you've caused, the decisions you've made, the things you feel guilt and shame for. 
Think perhaps of those things you can barely forgive yourself for. And in the end, they're ultimately sins before God. But through Jesus, they can all be forgiven. And that is how God rebuilds his people. Amen.